0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth.
1: Well, uh, it is my joy to give the message tonight, and I uh, know that many of your friends have already gone home for Thanksgiving. I'm glad you stayed, Isaac Stapleton. Will train on down. I'm glad you guys are here. I honestly believe uh, that tonight's message is, uh, how can I say this? Um, It's like a a hearty Thanksgiving meal. You're going to be glad you ate it, you know? And then you may want to take a nap afterwards, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, we are in the middle of a series called... uh, Uh, called Come and See. And for the first half of the semester, we talked about coming and seeing um, the signs of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We we looked at these signs and they told us a lot about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then we spent the last three weeks talking about uh, where we would come and see how to thrive in his kingdom. And we looked at insider information that Jesus shared with his disciples of what it would look like for them to thrive. And tonight, I'm entitling the message, Come and See Our King. Come and see our king. If I were to say uh, that someone got the royal treatment, what would come to your mind if somebody was getting the royal treatment? Um, Perhaps it would be someone... You'd think of somebody who's living large and in charge, and they're, they got people waiting on them. They got all their favorite things in their favorite place. You know, probably Instagrammable food at an Instagrammable place, living with Instagrammable people. What, I don't know what that means, but you know what I'm talking about. Their life would be Instagrammable. That's the point. What would it mean to get the royal treatment? Um, I, def, I actually looked up the definition of royal treatment... Very elaborate and attentive treatment. So I asked my kids uh, yesterday, I said, if you were to get the royal treatment, what would that entail? And I asked them three questions. What would you do? What would you have people do for you? And what would you eat? Okay. And so let me tell you what my kids would do. Um, my my uh, oldest son would go to uh, the drive shack. That would be his royal treatment. <laughs> I'm like, wait a set your goals really high. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, because we went to the drive shack in Richmond, and i like, oh, I guess he really liked that. That's his royal treatment. Um, my other son, Jeremiah, would go to the arcade, because that's what 10-year-old boys like to do, right? And then my daughter, Nevaeh, would go horseback riding. Oh, yeah, see animals, that's something about it. Okay. Um, but yesterday was actually my oldest son's birthday. He uh, turned 17. So, uh, yeah, happy birthday to him. And so, what we have kind of a deal where it's on your birthday. You get to choose what we eat, right? And so, that's kind of his royal treatment. And so, let me show you. So, we said you can go anywhere, you know, where, where would you like to go? And, uh, drumroll please, he chose Cane's. Yeah, that's right. Yes, we had Cane's last night, a little Caniac for the birthday, you know. Um, so, so we had cake, and then we said you can have any dessert you want like mom will make you a cake we can go you know buy something somewhere what would you want and here is what he chose cookout milkshake. <laughs> somebody's doing something right as a parent you know what I'm talking about somebody's doing something right as a parent <laughs> When your son's royal treatment is canes followed by cookout milkshake, So we actually had two gar- cars go to the drive through at the same time because they both had long lines, one at canes, one at, at cookout. And we met back at home and we had our feast of high-calorie proportion. <laughs> the royal treatment. Tonight, we are going to see the royal treatment of our king We're going to see his coronation and what his treatment looked like. I have asked Amanda uh, to come and read the the Scriptures. It's a lot of Scripture tonight, so please get out your Bible. And I'm going to ask that you would lean in and listen attentively. I've asked her to read from actually uh, three different places. And so we're putting all the verses up. Here's where she's going to read from so you can follow her. And uh, please lean in. Don't zone out. This is God's word. This is probably like the most important stuff that will be said tonight, right? Because it's his word. And so lean in as she reads God's word to us.
0: From the book of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Word of the Lord.
1: Heavenly Father, as we dive into this passage that marks our faith and study and look at the glory of our King, I pray that you would open our hearts to your glory that you would show us your glory, that our lives would be changed, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you listen to what Amanda read, if you were looking for the, the theme of king, and every time you heard the word king or kingdom was mentioned, and you made a circle all over your those two chapters of your bible you would have circles because it because it is clearly the theme of these chapters the accusations that the sanhedrin brought against jesus was that he was the king of the jews and so the reason why they did that is because they're trying to get him in hot water with pilate who works for the roman empire and they know that if they say he claims to be a king that that would show them show Pilate how dangerous Jesus is and that he would get capital punishment. In fact, anybody who claimed or attempted sedition against the Roman Empire would be crucified. That is why the the Jewish leaders cried out, crucify him, crucify him, because that's what you do to people who try to work a sedition. And so Pilate comes to Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews. And Jesus replies, not by saying he's not a king, but he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I have a kingdom that is from another place and it's not like the earthly kingdoms that are secured and advanced through um, fighting. If it was, my people would have fought for me when you came to arrest me, but my kingdom is different. Now, don't think for a second that, doesn't, that that means that his kingdom is not for this world. No, his kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world. His kingdom is the embraking of the kingdom of God within this fallen world so that new creation could be established. And one day, all things would be made new. And so... What we are going to look at is we are going to look at the coronation of this king. In fact, if you think about a kingly coronation, it is a moment of great glory. There's a crown, there's a robe, there's, um, there's pronouncements of, of hail to the king, right? I mean, it's a a moment of glory. And John Calvin said that the chapters that were just read are the theater of glory. So if you stepped in and you looked around these chapters, you would behold glory. In fact, it's been said God's glory was never more on display than when Jesus was on the cross. And so what I hope we get tonight is we're going to look at a few things that we step back and we say, whoa, glory, as we observe our king's coronation. Now, another thing that I want to point out, in chapter 19, four times it talks about so scripture would be fulfilled. Four different times. In other words, what we are studying tonight, what we are looking at tonight is the pinnacle of God's redemptive story. It's about the fulfillment of the story that's been going on for generation after generation, century after century, millennia, even and beyond. And so what started in Genesis that moved on to Israel is now coming to its culmination point in Jesus. This is the culmination of the story. So as we read what happens, it makes a lot of sense that you would have a lot of hyperlinks from what's happening into Jesus that goes all the way back to the other parts of the story that's coming to its fulfillment. Are you guys following me? And so what we're going to do tonight is we are going to look at how Jesus is the culmination of the big story. Now, one thing that's very interesting to me when I read the Gospel of John in the cross account, in the, in the gospel of John, is how little attention is paid to the physical suffering of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was suffering in horrific, abhorrent ways. And yet John doesn't seem too interested to describe it to us. He gave you very, very little of the physical sufferings of Jesus, as, ab- as abhorrent as they were. What he did do is this. He focused on real and yet representative aspects of the cross that will plunge you further into the depths of what was really going on at the cross. Okay, As Jesus was on the cross, he gives us, he leads us, he spends time in three different places. And we're going to quickly look at those three different places because he wants you to plunge into the depths of the cross, beyond the physical suffering, into the, the deep work that Jesus was accomplishing. Okay, so uh, Tim Keller put it this way. He said this, his body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was but a flea bite compared to what was happening in his soul. So that's what we're going to look at tonight is the depth of what was happening as Jesus was coronated on a cross. The first thing we see in chapter 19 is in verse 2. It says this, that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. So as our king was being coronated, initiating the kingdom of God within this fallen world, it says that a, a, a crown of thorns was put upon his head. And then what does it say? That there was a robe, a purple robe, that was put over him And then they hailed the king of the Jews. And so this was a coronation. Make no mistake about it. What would you have at a coronation? You would have a crown, a royal robe, and hailing the king. Except this one is done in in mockery. But the irony is, he is the king. But his coronation was with a crown of thorns. Okay. This text has a hyperlink. That's why thorns is in blue. To an earlier place in scripture that will take us to the first place that thorns are mentioned in the Bible. Do you know what the first place that thorns are mentioned in the Bible is? In Genesis chapter 3. You guys are all so smart. Right after the fall of humanity, God comes and pronounces curses upon what's going to happen as a result of this rebellion. And what we see is in verse 17 and 18 is, this is what God says is going to be the reality post the rebellion of humanity. He says this, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. In other words, Thorns and thistles are symbolic of the fact that the world is now under a, a curse because of the rebellion of humanity, okay? So it's they're the result of the curse. They're a symbol of the fact that the world is under the curse of sin. And here's what we get. We get that they take a, a, a crown of What? thorns and in our king's coronation they crown him with the symbol of the curse now what does this tell us about what was going on on the cross it tells us that Jesus bears on his head the curse of sin and as It is put on his head. The wrath of the sin of the world is poured out upon him. Think about the most heinous sin that you can imagine. And think about the judgment it deserves. Now I want you to take all of that. Funnel it together like a laser onto the head. As hellish as it would be to experience for one individual to deal with one individual. You have the sin and the curse of sin of the entire world. And the wrath of that sin being funneled onto one head. Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. As he bears the wrath of sin of the world. Jesus took the curse of sin on his head. So that new creation could be established in your life. That you could be made a new creation. And that someday, one day, all things will be made new. Behold your king. And they took a crown of thorns. And they placed it on his head. And we say, glory. The second thing that John spends an inordinate amount of time on is the fact that it says they took his clothes and they divided them. He points this out for a couple of reasons. One, because he wants you to know it's a fulfillment of Scripture. But why does he focus so much on the fact that Jesus was crucified naked? See, in this day, Roman soldiers they would do two things. First of all, they would crucify people in a very public place. We think about Gogotha, like some way over a little hilltop with a little, cro- you know, three little crosses. And see him in the distance with a. You know, the shadow being cast. Actually, they would crucify their victims in a a major public place. It would be some place like the downtown mall today or stone fields. Why would they do such a thing? Because they want you to know what will happen if you get on their wrong side. They're going to make an example. In fact, they would actually put the accusation against you. They would put it around your neck as you were marched to that place. And then they would hang it on the cross so everyone knew while you were there. So no one else would do what you were doing. And Not only that, they would strip you naked, because it was a way to humiliate and to shame those who were being crucified. And so to be in a, a, made a public spectacle in the midst of horrific suffering was a moment of great shame as you hung there naked, especially for a Palestinian Jew. See, our king and his coronation didn't receive a royal robe, in fact. He was stripped naked and crucified in shame. Now, if you've been a student of the Bible, you would know that there's some hyperlinks to the nakedness of Jesus. Um, go ahead and hit the hyperlink now. Yeah. Throughout the Bible, nakedness is connected with shame. I gave you some Examples you can look up if you would like. There's only one place in all of Scripture where nakedness is not spoken of with shame. Do you know what that place is? Genesis. Well done, you Bible scholars. Genesis chapter 2. Why is that consequential? It ends. The very last line of Genesis chapter 2 is that they were both naked and they felt no shame. Shame. I want you to know there's no shame in nakedness. They could be vulnerable. They were acceptable. There was nothing that felt insufficient about them, deficient about them. They weren't scared to be seen at any level. But what we see is, is immediately right after sin enters the human race, that the ramifications of sin is that shame pounces on humanity, and the first thing that we learn after the, the, the fall is that they are hiding. And what are they doing when they're hi- hiding? Do you guys know what they're doing? Sewing. They're sowing fig leaves together, which are nice big leaves. So if you're going to sow some leaves, yeah, that's a pretty good choice, right? So they got the leaves. And why are they doing that? Because they are covering themselves because now their experience is riddled by shame. And they now no longer feel like it is safe to be seen. They feel like they must hide, that there's something inadequate and insufficient about them. Immediately after sin enters the human experience. I have often wondered how much of our pursuit of success, beauty, wealth, toys, degrees, Instagramable lives, name brand clothes is nothing more than fig leaves trying to cover our own sense of shame. trying to cover this sense that there's something deficient or insufficient about us. That another degree may prove that I am worth something. Maybe the right job offer, the right acceptance into grad school, whatever it may be. And it says that Jesus was crucified naked And took our shame on the cross. In fact, it says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The cross, make no mistake about it, was about shame. And here's what the Bible says. That Jesus was crucified naked in shame so that we, as it says in Isaiah 61, could be clothed with the robe of righteousness, which is a robe of honor. In other words, that when you enter into what your king has done for you, he was crucified naked so you could be clothed with righteousness and honor and live as a child of God in his kingdom with shame being pushed away and now you can live in honor and righteousness. Our king took the shame of sin. So that we could be clothed with righteousness and honor. And they divided his clothes among them. And we beheld his glory, the coronation of your king. And finally, we get one last description of what happened on the cross. It says that Jesus cried out, I am thirsty, or in some translations, I thirst. You know, this is interesting to me because in all of the places where Jesus could have cried out in pain, he chooses to cry out, I'm thirsty. Is that peculiar to anyone else? Okay, so uh, just to back up, Jesus was flogged, where his skin was ripped to shreds, I don't need to go into great detail. He was—he had stakes driven through his the nerve centers of his body, was his wrists and his ankles. He had a crown of thorns put on his head, and yet he cries out, "I am thirsty." Now I don't doubt the fact he was thirsty. He would have lost a lot of blood. There had been dehydration. He. It was probably a very hot day. There are many regions why, through sweating and bleeding and so on, he would have been thirsty. There's no doubt that is true. But out of everything that he cries out is, "I am thirsty." I think we need to ask the question, "Why? Why that?" Well, uh, let's look at the hyperlink. <laughs> Happens to be another hyperlink. If You remember back in this very book, John chapter four, uh, there is a story of a woman at a well, and Jesus speaks to this woman at the well and says if, um, that if you knew who asked you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you something that once you drank it, you would never thirst again and what he's doing this, this woman at the well, you guys will recall from earlier in the semester had had five husbands and the man she's living with right now is not one of her husbands and he is putting her in touch with the the fact that her deepest thirst of her life she's trying to meet with all of these relationships and it's leaving her thirsty and so he says to you the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life in other words I can give you something to drink that will deal not with what seems like is your most urgent thirst or your most, um, how can I say, the the, the thirst that is seemingly on the surface of your life. I can give you something that will satisfy the deepest thirst of your life. Then in chapter 7 of John, which Sarah talked about a few weeks ago, He says this, he is standing at the Feast of Tabernacles where there's two symbols uh, that they celebrate at the Feast of Tabernacles from their times in the wilderness. One was light because God led them with a pillar of fire by day and cloud by night. And the other was water because Moses struck the rock, water poured out. And so they are celebrating when God gave them water in the desert, in the midst of the wilderness. And Jesus stands up in that great holy day in the Jewish calendar and he cries out at the temple. He says this, Let anyone who thirsts come to me. And rivers of of living water will flow from within them. The reason why I share this is because what we need to understand in John, thirst is not just about wanting some water. Thirst is about a spiritual thirst, not just a physical thirst. And now... We have the very source of living water, the one who throughout the gospel is known as the thirst quencher, crying out that he is thirsty. What's going on there? Well, what is going on there is Jesus is... Experiencing something more horrific than anything he has ever experienced, and in that moment, he cries out in pain in a way no stake would ever make him cry out. He's experiencing experiencing spiritual thirst, because he's experiencing the alienation that sin causes as sin is put upon his shoulders. Jesus, the Son of God, experiences alienation from the Father where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the alienation that sin causes and he experiences for the very first time the, the alienation from the presence of God, from the very source of the waters of life and the thirst quencher cries out an ultimate Thirst. Several years ago, I read an article that Tim Keller wrote on hell, and he said two things. He said that the pain of being forsaken relationally is determined by two things. One, how long have you known the person? And two, how intimate was that relationship? Let me give you an example. If today I walked on university grounds, and a student who I didn't know comes up to me and says, you know what? I don't ever want to see your face again. And just lets me have it. I'd be like, well, that's kind of rude. I don't even know you. I'd go home, eat dinner with my family, have some canes and milkshake, you know. I'd say, you don't believe what happened today. Now, I go in the office, and one of my staff comes to me and says, I'm done with you. Accuses me of stuff. Quits. Walks out. That'd be painful. Why would that be painful? Because I got a lot of history with these guys. I see Buddy Gavin here. I got a lot of history with these guys. Right? I love these guys. They love me. I hope. It's a different level of pain. We've journeyed together for a long time, been through stuff, we shared our hearts with each other. That'd be painful. But if I go home tonight and my wife says to me, I'm done. After 23 years of marriage, I can't do it anymore. She forsakes me. She walks out. I'll tell you, that cut to the depth of my soul. Because the relational pain, I, I'll tell you this, anybody who's ever experienced relational betrayal knows that it is more painful than physical pain. And Jesus, in this moment, experiences the ultimate Forsaking. I mean, think about his relationship with the Father that was beginningless and infinitely greater in intimacy and passion than any human relationship has ever. It's it's a mystery. Within the very Godhead was this, somehow, as Jesus bore the sin, that there was an alienation, a thirst of soul. Uh, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus went into that pit, the most powerful furnace of alienation, so that you and so that I could have access to the living water. So we could have access to the thing Let me rephrase that. To the one who can satisfy the depths of our souls. That no relationship and no degree and no job and no marriage will ever be able to touch. He thirsts so we could be satisfied. You know, it says right after he cries out, I thirst, the next thing he cries out, it is finished. And scholars will point out that it is finished is said in the perfect tense. In other words, it is continually present. It's the, in other words, it is finished, it was finished, it is finished, it'll always be finished. So let me just read these three realities. The curse of sin has been paid and always will be paid. Your shame has been bore on the cross and always will be bore so you can be clothed in righteousness and in honor and always be clothed in righteousness and wear the robe of honor. He thirsts so that the deepest thirst of your life could be eternally satisfied and you would thirst no more. It is finished. Behold your king. I don't know if you noticed, but when Amanda read it, I'm going to call the worship team up. You guys can come up quietly, please. That It said that Pilate had the charge against Jesus written. And it said it was written in three languages. Did you catch that? It was written in Aramaic, Latin, for all the scholars, and in what? Greek. Isn't it interesting that Pilate did that? Again, great irony here, but here's what happens. Pilate Says, I want you to write it in Aramaic, which is the common language of Judea. And then I want you to write in Latin because that is the language of the, uh, of, of the Roman army. Then I want you to write it in Greek because that was the, the, the major language of the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean world. And ultimately, what you see is in the languages of the world, Jesus. Of Nazareth, the king of the Jews is being declared, and, and Pilate, of course, unknowingly and unwittingly, but John wants you to know is declaring that Jesus is the king of the world. He's the king of Saudi and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and Benin and Ethiopia and Somalia and Jordan. In Australia, in New Zealand, in Russia, and in China. He's the king of the world. Behold your king. Yes, our king in his coronation, he took the curse of sin of the fallen world on his head so that we could experience the new creation. And one day... Every longing of your heart for all things to be made new will become true. I was talking to an alum just recently and he was dealing with the problem of evil. And I said, you know what, I understand the problem of evil is called a problem for a reason. But I just look at the cross. Because what I see is, is that on the cross there's one who's saying one day I will make all things new. He wasn't aloof from the pain of the world. He endured it. And he promises to make it new. This king who was crucified naked so that you wouldn't have to live in shame, but you could have a robe of righteousness and honor that you would wear Jesus bore your shame so you could live in the honor of being a child of God. And he experienced the thirst of sin. So that you and so that I could have our deepest longings met to be reunited with our Heavenly Father. Something that is such a more profoundly deep thirst and desire than anything else in your life. Behold, your king. Will you stand? As we I told you to be like a Thanksgiving meal. As we close, we're just gonna do a simple thing. We're gonna give thanks. Your King's coronation. Let's respond to this king by saying, you know what? We're going to live for his kingdom. That's not of this world, but it's definitely for this world. Hallelujah. I'm going to say something as we were singing this. I had a picture in my head. I want you to picture this with me. I want you to picture you having Jesus come and put his robe of righteousness and honor on you. Whatever shame you deal with, having it be covered in his righteousness and in his honor. And then I want you to picture you doing this, just walking around with it. And then you realize, like he isn't just giving it to you to walk around and see what it feels like. It's yours. He wants you to wear that to class. He wants you to wear that when you go home for Thanksgiving. It's yours. You might as well get comfortable in it because it's yours, baby. Probably at first it feels a little other Jesus wants it to feel normal, clothed you in salvation, and given you a robe of righteousness so you can walk in honor. I believe that's for some people in here tonight, if you will cling to that truth and that image. I feel like we've had had a feast. <laughs> so, you guys ready to go home with the robe, or wherever you're going? You may not be going home; you're going to friend's house, whatever. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for putting your glory on display we say, all hail King Jesus. And may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And as you walk around in that robe of righteousness, may he give you peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving. We have a lot to be grateful for.
0: Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website,
1: X-A-A-T-U-V-A.com.